This is Professor Allen, and welcome to the Quarter Bin. In every episode of this podcast, I will summarize, criticize, discuss, and review a single issue from my comic book collection, which I will select sort of at random. Any book from my entire comic book collection is eligible. Well, actually, only the ones that I paid 25 cents or less for. Was the issue worth 25 cents? Was it a bargain at 25 cents? Or was it still overpriced? Stay tuned and find out. For this 24th episode of The Quarterbin, I'm looking at Micronauts number 7 from Marvel Comics cover date of July 1979. But first, some feedback, much of it about episode 21, the final part of the Adam Strange trilogy. But first, David Fiore left a Facebook message about episode 19. Very much enjoyed the quarter bin cast on Doctor Strange 32. Like you, I was winding down the first phases of my comics collecting career at that point. The endless waves of infinity blank crossovers finally caused me to give up on even Doctor Strange. But I agree that this was a good issue all on its lonesome. And if I recall correctly, the Fear Lord's backup series blossomed into a really good story a few months later. Couple things, David. First, I love the phrase infinity blank crossovers, because as I was flipping through the quarter bins, I saw very many crossovers that started with the word infinity. Whether that was gauntlet, war, breakfast burrito, flavored water, I don't know. It just seemed like everything had the word infinity in front of it. He also echoes what Jason Trenner mentioned last episode, that the Fear Lords back up was really good on its own, a three-issue arc in the backup, and then it did interact a few issues down the road with the main story within Doctor Strange. So I'm sort of interested in picking those up if I can find those in the cheap stacks. Faithful Facebooker Zeb Oswald sent his first email to the show recently, and much of it was about episode 20, the Wonder Woman episode I did with Mike Bailey. He tells of his memories with the 25-cent bin. I used to dive into those all the time after I got the five regular comics I got with my five-buck allowance. And like your show, I could really find some gems. He then commented on how he preferred the William Messner Loeb run of WW as his favorite. I thought it was awesome. The Wonder Woman issues by Perez? Eh, Not so much. I only picked up a few of that run. Zeb, 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 you're killing me! So the review of this was cool. I'm looking forward to when you do the review of the next Adam Strange book. Looks like it should be cool too. Thanks, Zeb. I appreciate the feedback. And then on to the Adam Strange-related feedback. Michael Bradley and I continued an email exchange that began about earlier issues of the Man of Two Worlds storyline. Though I think it could be updated for a modern audience, he writes... I will concede the jetpack-wearing, laser-pistol-toting space adventure has lost some of its luster in the oh-so-serious 2014. I also wonder if the fully integrated DC Universe hasn't hurt the character. A core part of Strange is the Zeta Beam that allows him to go to Ran and then keeps pulling him back to Earth. That problem becomes significantly less of one once he starts hanging out with the JLA who could just, you know build him a spaceship. He commented that even though he probably won't read Jeff Lemire's New 52 revival of Adam Strange, he'll be interested to see exactly how he's rebooted. 
And I agree with Michael on that. Like I said in those episodes, I do wish there was a place for the standalone, out of continuity or or disconnected characters. I appreciate the shared universe concept, but I don't know that every character has to be in that shared universe. I'd be fine to have Adam Strange out there on his own, doing his ray gun and jetpack stories somewhere where I could read them. You know, I was thinking about the shared universe concept of comics and comparing it in my mind to publishers of novels and how that is such a different world. I read plenty of different novels published by, say, Simon & Schuster, but it's never bummed to me out that they don't exist in the same universe. But somehow, DC and Marvel have to go out of their way to figure out how to introduce a new concept or a character that is not in their main universe. In other words, the default in comic books is the assumption that all these characters inhabit the same space, wherein other forms of literature, the items published by the same company are assumed to be disconnected from each other, independent of each other. Luke Giaconetti sent me an email with one of the best subject lines ever. Man of two worlds, but apparently no brain. He writes, I guess the Adam and Eve gag being right there in my face should have clued me in to the end that was coming, but I have to admit, this one swerved me. I guess because I'm much more familiar with the later take on the character, where Adam, Alana, and Aaliyah are a loving family unit, which frankly is a much better setup than what we end up at the end of this series. Absolutely, Luke. He says that there are fun moments in the Ran Thanagar Holy War series with Adam and Alana as the loving power couple, and Aaliyah palling around with her Uncle Hawkman. Luke does point out that as far as sticking, the fact that Aaliyah continues to exist makes the series matter in the grand scheme of things. And since Luke runs the Hawkman-themed blog Being Carter Hall, he once again compares this series to Hawkworld. Hawkworld led to several years of Hawkman stories spun directly from it. For good or ill, there was not much follow-up on Man of Two Worlds. Had the series ended in a better place, say Adam reconciling with Alana and rededicating himself to his family and his new homeworld, I could see an ongoing spinning out of it, but with this ending, not so much. So, as you said, perhaps the retcon was necessary to keep Adam a viable, publishable character. Uh, well, if you're agreeing with what I said, then I heartily agree with you too, Luke. Luke brags that he got the prestige format books of Hawkworld out of a three-for-a-dollar bin, and I told him that was close enough. He can consider those honorary quarter-bin books. Another great email subject line came in a message from Ben Avery. Ugh, Adam and Eve. He expands on this premise in the body of his missive. I hate, hate, hate that trope. Rarely does it enhance a story. At best, they were the Adam and Eve at the beginning of a new civilization in that Twilight Zone episode twist, which may be somewhat satisfying, but in an eye-rolling sort of way. At worst, it's a goofy shorthand for a theme that rarely actually fits. And again, that was one of my concerns with the Adam and Eve parallel, was that this was that there was a distinct misfit between this story and that reference. Ben continues, Maybe the word I'm looking for is lazy. 
This Adam and Eve new Genesis trope says one of two things. One, I as a writer can't present my ideas without dipping into cliché. Or B, I as a writer don't think you readers are sophisticated enough to understand what I'm trying to say with my story. I've mentioned before that Ben is a comic writer, and I think that this part of his message reflects someone who's really thought about the specifics of the craft of writing. And those are insights that I sensed I was grasping at, but Ben really crystallized some of my thoughts there. Really interesting take. Uh, He also said, similar to Mike Bradley a few minutes ago, that he's a big fan of Elseworld stories, and Elseworld-style stories, uh, echoing points that I made, uh, Ben adds, I often just want to sit down and get everything I need from the book in my hand. There's something to be said for continuity, but I care more about a good story. Exactly, Ben. Exactly. Shag wrote in about the Adam Strange issues as well, and the irredeemable one added his voice to those jealous of my regular access to 25-cent books, and the fact that it's really usually hard to find complete series in the cheap bins. He did agree with me that Adam didn't earn his happy ending. I guess it could be argued that losing Alana was his price for cheating, but it was an even bigger price for her to pay. Plus, she never got to confront him about the infidelity. He ended up with a new girl, his daughter, and a potentially important role in society. The journey and payoff don't match from a storytelling perspective. Shag and I are on totally the same page on this one. And it's not that the last four pages ruined the 140 that came before, but that ending left a sour taste in my mouth. And many months after reading the series for the first time, I'll be honest, that sour taste is still there. He goes on to recommend the Adam Strange Planet Heist trade paperback. The miniseries was by Andy Diggle and Pascal Ferry and published in 2005. Gorgeous artwork, he says. Some modernization of Adam takes place in the story, but personally, I was pleased. In fact, this was the first time I as a reader ever got Adam Strange. Now that is a strong endorsement. He adds, not sure if you've heard, but both Adam and Alana will be members of the upcoming Justice League United. Early press indicates the new 52 Alana will be more of the swashbuckling hero than Adam. And as I said a few minutes ago, I'm interested to see how this plays out in the new 52. Again, great episode. So glad I'm a subscriber of this podcast. You know what, Shag? I'm so glad you're a subscriber of this podcast, too. In that episode, I also asked for your thoughts on the format of the show, especially in taking on longer stories and miniseries. The general consensus seemed to be the way I handled the Adam Strange mini worked out pretty well for most listeners in terms of episode length and staggering the coverage of the books in the series. I think Shag summed it up pretty well. Having other episodes in between prevented listeners from being bored with one particular storyline. Instead, it was more like coming back and visiting an old friend. Well done. Ben Avery also added, I'm still listening anyway, so you must be doing something right. And just for everyone's information, I do have a four-issue prestige format mini on the schedule, and coverage of that should start sometime in the summer. And I think I'll do that the same way every third episode or so. Wow, this has been a robust feedback segment. Thanks to everybody for the emails, as well as the Twitter love, the Facebook comments, and all the wide range of feedback options. 
I really appreciate the sense of community or, or at least of conversation that's happening with the show. I'm going to take a break here, play a promo, and we'll be back with coverage of Micronauts number seven. Hey, Gene, we should do a podcast. Sounds like a great idea, Jeff, but what will we talk about? How about a superhero that we both love? Perfect. Something like Thor or Captain America? Uh, both great choices, but um, I think they're being covered by somebody else already. Wait, I've got it. What about the protector of the universe? Like Voltron? No, no, no. The guy with the jewelry that lets him create whatever he wants. Ah, Green Lantern, nice. Close. No, this guy has cosmic awareness. Captain Marvel? Almost. I mean, Quasar. Ah, Quasar. Who doesn't love a good Quasar? Tune in to the Quantum Cast, covering all things Quasar. Yes, that's right. You can find us at quantumbands.blogspot.com. And on the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. Micronauts number 7 had a cover price of 40 cents, meaning I acquired this comic at sort of a not-that-great 37% discount. But given that I saw a 9.8 rated slabbed version of this very same book selling for $60 online, I probably shouldn't complain too much about paying a quarter for this specific copy. The story, Adventure into Fear, was presented by Stan Lee, written and drawn by Bill Mantlow and Michael Golden, with finishes by Joseph Rubenstein. The cover shows our guest star tromping around in the swampy environs somewhere, grasping a couple of tiny little micronauts in his hand, others looking upon the big guy pretty helplessly, but I'm not going to reveal who it is just yet. Yeah, it's kind of a spoiler. The issue itself starts with young Steve Coffin fishing off the end of the pier outside his father's cabin in the Everglades. Last issue, he and the micronauts fled here to regroup and to relax, after escaping from Professor Prometheus and the Florida police. Microtron, for example, is watching a television for news of Steve's father, Ray, and he finds an episode of Star Trek. In another room, Princess Mari, whose full name I learned this issue is Marionette, asks Biotron why Commander Rand sleeps in his hibernation capsule. Biotron shows her to a video screen that shows the commander's dreams but for us readers it's really a flashback machine we see a thousand years ago with ran bidding farewell to his parents the rulers of homeworld as chief scientist karza looks on ran sets off to explore the microverse in a spaceship the endeavor bringing homeworld's message of peace to countless worlds however long before the journey's end the warp drive was discovered on Homeworld, and later spaceships were able to travel instantaneously. So all the planets that the first Micronauts explored were all later conquered by the armies of Karza. Centuries later, his ship reached the outer limits of the universe, the fringes. It accelerated beyond its tolerances, but somehow stayed together. Three beings, the Time Travelers, appeared passing data to Ron 
through Biotron. Their main message, as far as Biotron could tell, was welcome to the Enigma Force. From that time forward, Biotron's telepathic link to Ran became permanent. My circuits suddenly awash with human feelings. I became afraid. Regaining control of the endeavor, I tore us away from that unspeakable glory at the fringes, and I plotted a course for home. Microtron has finally received the news bulletin. A force field has sprung up around the human engineering life laboratories. That's right. Hell. At Cape Canaveral. Colonel Macy is asked about reports of tiny aliens, which he, of course, denies. Mari notices that Steve is crying. I thought they'd mention my dad, Princess. But no one mentions Ray Coffin. Steve grieves afresh for his loss. And outside, a segment of swamp seems to disassociate itself from its surroundings. With halting steps, it advances on the tiny fishing cabin, empathically attracted to young Steve Coffin's grief as a fly is drawn to honey. At that dramatic moment, we move to the subatomic cosmos known as the Microverse. The mobile labs finish their analysis of Philip Prometheus, an unwilling visitor from Earth who, following on from last issue, finds himself floating among the little spacecrafts. Baron Karza knows that the travel drove Prometheus insane, but Karza is not concerned about the man's mental state. He commands, prepare the subject for the mind merge. Back on Homeworld, Prince Argon the Centaur and the super-hot rebel leader Slug find a rebel cell. The rebels assume it's a trap. A shadow priest appears, however, and offers to conduct everyone to a place of safety. There you will be told all you need to know for the final battle. Elsewhere in space, one of those three mysterious time travelers offers former astronaut Ray Coffin, Steve's dad, the chance to become a champion of Earth. You can't make a hero out of a guy like me, he asks. Can you? Back in the Everglades, an overcome young Steve runs out of the cabin. Mari follows and warns the young boy, there's danger. And then we get a full-page splash. Words cannot express the emotions that run riot in young Steve Coffin at the sight of the nightmarish creature that rises from the swamp. Suffice to say that principal among these is the emotion of fear. The trouble with that is whatever knows fear burns at the man-thing's touch. Yeah, you probably figured out that it was the man-thing who was on the cover, but like I said, I didn't want to spoil what's really a pretty good full-page reveal. Princess Mari fires at the creature, and the rest join the attack with no noticeable effect. The little heroes rally around the young man. Fear not, Steve. You are under the sworn protection of the mighty Acroyer. Bug finds himself pinned under the man-thing's hand, panics, and starts to cook in his own shell. The bark of Muffin the dog calls Steve's attention to the swamp buggy moored at the dock. His fear placed by determination. Steve jumps into the buggy and starts the engine. So the swamp creature, perhaps attracted by that form of humanity most familiar to it, 
turns toward the sole present source of human emotion. The Man-Thing plods forward directly into the Swamp Buggy's giant fan, almost as if, by seeming to suffer defeat, he were somehow honoring the courage he sensed in young Steve Coffin. Neither the Micronauts nor young Steve can quite make sense of what has just happened. I get the feeling the creature just didn't have a reason to fight anymore, like maybe it committed suicide rather than continue. But on the last page, we see Man-Thing reconstructing itself in the heart of the swamp, leaving him isolated in the inexpressible loneliness that is the Man-Thing's own peculiar sort of hell. At this time, the Endeavor is repaired and re-energized, and Commander Ran decides to search for Steve's father and carry the war back to Karza. And in the very last panel, back at the Hell facility, a lone figure climbs out of the Prometheus pit. So this is Earth, Baron Karza says upon emerging. What a pleasant world this will be to conquer. Like science fiction? Audiobooks? I'm science fiction writer Mike Luoma, and I've been reading my stuff on Glow in the Dark Radio since 2006. Free to listen and subscribe at glowinthedarkradio.com or in the iTunes store. Five novels and a bunch of short stories later, we're about to hit show 300. Why not join us? Listen for free. Glowinthedarkradio.com or on iTunes. Mike Luoma's Glow in the Dark Radio. And we're back. Two Micronauts issues in, and I am totally digging this series. Both the Micronauts toys and the comic series totally passed me by when I was a kid, but I am glad to have had a second chance at these issues. Thank you, Quarterbins. Come to think of it, I'm not sure that I specifically mentioned in the recap portion of the show that I did cover the issue right before this, Micronaut 6, way back in episode 11 of the podcast. Just wanted to make sure you knew that. Anyway, what I love about this series is the sense of sweeping epic that Mantlo has been able to construct in just 22 pages. Well, 44 pages in in the two issues I've read. But just in this issue, we get action all over, from the Everglades to various places in the microverse. And if you count the, the flashback sort of dream sequence... Then we have even more action locations. There are a ton of plot threads going on here, and I dig almost every one of them. As a reader, I love the questions that are asked here. It's possible that some of these were answered in issues 1 through 5, which I haven't read, but having read 6 and 7, I get the feeling that there are many mysteries in play here. What the heck are the time travelers? And what happened at the fringe? And how is one of these time traveler dudes gonna make Steve's dad a cosmic hero of some kind anyway? Is that Baron Karza's body that climbed out of the pit, or did he do some kind of mind transfer into Prometheus? It was implied that he was going to do that. But I can't tell if that's happened yet. And these glimpses of life in Homeworld with the centaur prince and slug the hot rebel leader. There's been a ton of interesting stuff shoved into very few panels of that storyline. 
And the silliest question of all, did Steve's dog really lead him to the swamp buggy? Is that dog actually Lassie? Or is that just a coincidence? And from Steve's perspective, we're getting him reading into those events. My feelings reading this are similar to reading the first 50 pages of a novel. The sense that things are building, the trust that all of these plot threads are going somewhere, and it's an exciting feeling. I am all in on Mantlo, and I'm trusting that he knows where this story is going. I'm taking my experience with him as a reader of Rom and applying it here to Micronauts. Uh, By the way, I do have the next couple issues of this title, and I will drop the next one in, I don't know, 10 or 15 episodes from now. And I'm going to keep my eyes peeled for more of these next time I hit the quarter bin sale. To be honest, the only problem I have with this issue is the presence of Man-Thing. If this were a book published in the 2000s, I'd credit that to editorial meddling, and as I will discuss in a few minutes... I suspect there was some editorial meddling here. Whatever the reason for Man-Thing's inclusion in the book, I have two uh, somewhat contradictory thoughts about it. From a technical writing standpoint, the inclusion did work. Fleeing to the Everglades was established last issue. Steve's fears for his father's destiny flowed directly from that big-picture plot, so I think Mantlo did a good job presenting the appearance of Man-Thing in a way that made in-story sense. But I don't see where Man-Thing is inherently part of the Micronauts universe, at least as I understand it by reading just these two issues. Perhaps I'm wrong. But in a book that's clearly telling a long-form story, this diversion, this inclusion of another disconnected character feels way out of place. Now, The long-form storytelling that Mantlo is doing here, and in Rom also, that's sort of a new thing in comics, or at least it was in its early days, this idea of the long, ongoing narrative. One of my favorite TV shows of all time is Babylon 5, which was one of the first shows to present itself in the same way as a novel, with each season representing a number of chapters in that one novel but the show as a whole telling, in essence, one long story. But there are single episodes, especially in that first season of Bab 5, that stand out as weak episodes, mostly because they're disconnected to the overall plot. You know, they were still working out how that long-form manner of storytelling was actually going to happen. And I get that similar feeling reading the Man-Thing fight in this issue. That it's good action. Again, it's technically well-delivered, but it just stands out as being so different from the rest of the story. You know, get me back to Karza and the Time Travelers and the, the Centaur Prince and the Hot Rebel Leader Slug. In other words, get me back to what the Micronauts is about. Get me back to elements in that grand story. Before I wrap up the issue... There's some ads I wanted to cover. I don't do this regularly, but there were some noteworthy ones here. There was, of course, a Hostess ad, this one featuring The Thing. No dramatic reading, I promise. There were also ads featuring a pair of, as yet, undisgraced sports stars, Pete Rose and O.J. Simpson. But there were two in particular I wanted to spend a little time with. One, I understand, was just a house ad that ran in every comic this month, but still, it was quite odd 
to be reading Micronauts number 7, guest starring the Man-Thing, and come face-to-face with a house ad promoting this exact issue, or as they call it, the Epic Encounter of 1979. It's insiders versus outsiders, as the marvelous Micronauts meet the macabre Man-Thing. I actually kind of like the insider inner space connection with Man-Thing as the outsider. That marketing speak actually works for me. I also like the copy at the bottom of the page. Be here when science fantasy meets fear head-on in Micronaut 7. I think they lived up to most of their ad copy reasonably well, to be fair. The key to the ad is probably the last line. And watch for the return of Man-Thing in his all-new comic coming soon. You see, this ad does somewhat confirm my suspicions that this issue was intended at least partially to serve as a backdoor pilot for the Man-Thing ongoing. Or at least, it does lend credence to the idea that including Man-Thing in this issue was less about it making sense in the context of Micronauts than about raising Man-Thing's profile among Marvel readers right before his own book was relaunched. I don't think the timing of those two events is a coincidence. The second ad was one I was very surprised to see in a Marvel mag, and that was a black-and-white ad for kryptonite rocks. There is a big picture of Superman that takes up about a third of the page, and the copy begins with, Attention, friends of Superman. And the order portion says, Yes, I'm a friend of Superman. Please send me blank kryptonite rocks. All of the DC trademarks are there, so it's legitimate. I just get the feeling that this would not have happened under the stewardship of Stan Lee in the Brand Eck days. But by 1979, I guess this was okay. I mean, I can't believe it just slipped by without someone noticing it. It must have been approved at some point in the publishing hierarchy at Marvel. The verdict on Micronauts number 7, another great science fiction, or what did they call it in the ad? Science fantasy science fantasy story. Now, I do think there was a bit of a sense of the backdoor pilot to this issue, which is pretty much confirmed by that ad copy. Now, I did check with Mike's Amazing World, and that Man-Thing series that's referenced did run 11 issues, and Chris Claremont wrote six or seven of those, by the way. That wraps up my coverage of Micronauts number 7, bringing episode 24 of the Quarterbin to a close. In episode 25... I'll be looking at Batman, The Legend of the Dark Knight, number 37, from DC Comics, cover dated September 1992. If you have any questions or comments about this issue or the podcast, feel free to contact me. Until next episode, I'm Professor Allen, and I'll see you in the quarter bin. The Quarterbin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky family of podcasts. Show notes and links are available at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com, where the podcasts Uncovering the Bronze Age and Shortbox Showcase also make their home. Links to Facebook and Twitter are there as well. Feedback for the show is welcome at relativelygeeky at gmail.com. And if you like what we've got going here, please leave a review and a rating in iTunes. It'll help more people discover the show. Thanks again for listening.